Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you've come to the right place. Daniele Bolelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Welcome to episode 38 of History on Fire. If you are completely allergic to ads, um, there's an easy solution. For $5 a month, you can join my Patreon page, and there you can get versions of the episodes with no ads. On the other hand, if you don't mind me trying to figure out ways that the podcast stay financially viable through ads, here we go. This episode of History on Fire is brought to you by Nordic Track. I'm super excited about being sponsored by them because I actually want their products. This is not just stuff that is like, oh, this looks good, maybe. No, I am getting this stuff. I've officially decided. I have my eyes on this one uh, treadmill desk. Uh, What I dig about it is the idea that you know, I spend an ungodly amount of hours at the computer every day, researching, working, answering messages. And so the idea of being able to have a standing desk connected to a treadmill, where I can walk at a leisurely pace while I get my work done, but by the end of the day I've just clocked in miles and miles, I kind of dig that concept. So that's next on my shopping list. Special offer for History on Fire listeners, you get $75 off your Nordic track purchase by visiting nordictrack.com forward slash history. Again, use the offer code history. It's nordictrack.com forward slash history and you'll save $75 off your purchase. In addition to treadmills, they have exercise bikes, incline trainers, a bunch of equipment for strength training, all sort of really healthy, really good stuff. So check them out. This episode of History on Fire is also brought to you by 4hims.com, a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, sexual wellness for men. Some crazy statistics I was reading. Some 66% of guys experience hair loss by the age of 35. 40% of men by age 40 struggle with ED. These guys at 4hims.com try to solve those problems in the easiest possible way. You don't need an in-person doctor visit for a prescription. Everything can be done online. They basically sell you the generic version, which is considerably cheaper but works the same than some of the name brand for the top hair loss and ED products. You can try their products for a month, starting today for just $5. So, while supplies last, only $5 for History on Fire listeners. This would cost 
needless to say, it would cost a whole lot more if you were to go any other route. So go to 4 forward slash history and the number 5. Again, that's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com forward slash history and the number 5. Can't beat this deal, so check them out. You guys by now know who else we are sponsored by, since they have been sponsoring us all year long. You have heard it before, History on Fire is sponsored by BlueApron.com. And you've heard it before, not just because of repetition, but because of the insane level level of enthusiasm that I've been displaying when I talk about them. Because we eat that three times a week. Three days a week, we got our, you know, we got the delivery once a week, and then we have food lasting for three awesome meals of the week. My only regret is that I don't have more. Maybe I should up my plan and start getting more stuff. In any case, they offer amazing recipes. You can pick how many you want each week, whether two, three, or four. High quality ingredients, fairly easy to follow um, directions. Usually you can get an amazing meal prepared for really fast. So what I suggest you do is check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free at blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Again, that's blueapron.com forward slash on fire to get your first three meals free. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Also, please show some love to my regular sponsors, Onnit and Datsusara. Onnit has a whole variety of products that I use every day from some of their supplements, including Alpha Brain that I just tried earlier today for the millionth time in my life. Excellent stuff. Exercise equipment. If you walk into my house right there in the living room, there's a collection of kettlebells that get to be put to very good use. Their kettlebells, by the way, are amazing. They have some really artistic shapes, some of them. They are functional and yet really beautiful. They're like a work of art. So you have exercise equipment, you have, um, particularly on it is famous for their supplements and for some of the special foods they sell. In addition, you have clothing and a whole bunch of other stuff. So rather than me trying to tell you everything they have, which would take the whole episode, go check them out at onnit.com forward slash history. Again, that's onnit.com forward slash history, where you'll receive an automatic discount. And the other good folks who sponsor me since forever are the people at Datsusara. Website is dsgear.com. Again, the letter D, the letter S, the word gear.com. There's no code, no slash, no nothing. You can just go there and check out all the goodies. They just restocked all their bags. Um, I use the backpack every time I travel. My daughter takes one of their backpacks to school. I use a computer bag when I go to teach at the university. Lots of great stuff there. So check out for the greatest hemp gear on the planet at dsgear.com. Now, before I continue, something I want to tell you guys before I forget. There are actually fairly big changes probably on the horizon for History on Fire. Things will continue as they are until the end of the year. I know that much for sure. After that, I don't know. 
so stay tuned uh, i'll probably i mean i'll definitely announce whatever whatever i decide in some up- upcoming episode i will probably discuss it on my facebook feed on the public page where i'll discuss history re- uh, on fire related news moral of the story i'm not gonna get into all the details but i received some really interesting proposals and i've been spending a monstrous amount of agonizing hours considering the pros and cons of whether mainly boils down to this on whether to continue relying on a model that's very heavily driven by advertising or not and there are advantages and disadvantages to both models so i'm trying to figure it out uh, again i won't bother you with this stuff until my mind is made up but just keep in mind that things may change in regards to um, how history and fire is done is released and everything else speaking of advertising before we roll into the episode there's one more i need to mention so let me roll with that this episode is also brought to you by simple contacts simple contacts is the most convenient way to renew your contact lens prescription and reorder your brand of contacts from anywhere, just within a few minutes. It's a vision care for the 21st century. These guys have created a way to save you time and energy by making the process of renewing your contact lenses prescription as fast and and painless as possible. You can take about five minutes to do the simple contacts vision test online. You'll be reviewed by a licensed doctor. You'll then receive the renew prescription and you can reorder your contacts. Of course, keep in mind, this isn't a replacement for your periodic full high health exam, but it does make things infinitely easier, so you didn't need to do the in-person visits in, even when you're confident you're not due for one and your vision hasn't changed. All you need is your current contacts, an internet connection and 10 feet of space. Simple Contacts is all the brands and types of lenses you're familiar with, so you never have to shop around to find your lenses at the best price. Best part, History on Fire listeners can enjoy a $20 discount by going to simplecontacts.com forward slash HOF. These guys have over 4,500 five-star ratings on the App Store. So check them out for a $20 discount by going to simplecontacts.com forward slash H-O-F. If you didn't catch any of the above websites, the links are in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com. But now, without further ado, let's go say History on Fire. This is a World War II story. But it's not really about World War II. The war serves as a backdrop for the story. A powerful backdrop, no doubt. But a backdrop nonetheless. Our tale takes place in the days when London went dark. The British government decided to protect the good citizens of the city from the attacks of Nazi pilots by ordering all man-made lights to be extinguished at night. The rationale was that if London wasn't lit up, enemy pilots would have a much harder time seeing their targets. There's debate on whether this strategy was actually effective or not. But what there isn't debate about is that the blackout spawned something ugly, something evil. 
a monster who blended with the darkness and turned London into his hunting grounds. His thirst for blood was insatiable. Once he snuffed out of the life of the first person he hunted, the monster couldn't stop. In the mythology of the Ojibwa, a tribe indigenous to North America, a windingo is a monster whose desire to kill grows with each kill. The monster from London shared this much with the windingo. His compulsion to spill blood wouldn't slow down after bringing down a victim. And so every single night, the monster crawled out of whatever den he called home and went out into the darkness, looking for more blood. Every night, a citizen of London would run into the monster, and that would be the last thing they would ever see. The monster would never stop of his own volition. The only thing that could bring an end to his reign of terror was the work of the man tasked with stopping him. Every morning this man would wake up with the knowledge that the monster was somewhere out there, in London, and that if, if they didn't find him in time, by dawn another life would be lost, another body would be found horrendously mangled. What am I going to tell you today is one of the craziest serial killer stories that you have never heard of. And there are very good reasons why most people have never heard of this. In 1942, death stalked London. Death came from the sky in the form of German bombs, and on the ground it came into the form of the Blackout Reaper. This is the name by which the monster came to be known. But publicizing the infamous activities of the Blackout Reaper is not something that was in the best interest of the nation at the time. The reaction of the citizens of London in the face of the German blitz, the bombing campaign unleashed by the German Air Force, has always been portrayed in heroic terms. The traditional version tells us that tough British people took the bombing in strides. They would get bombed all night, only to emerge with a smile in the morning, ready to go to work, as if nothing had happened. Now, don't get me wrong. In part, this way of telling the story was true. Many British people did display incredible courage and resilience in the face of the German attacks. And this was also a great propaganda weapon for the British government. It allowed them to tell Germany... Your bombs can't shake our resolve. They're having no effect on us, so feel free to stop anytime you want and spare yourself further embarrassment. There clearly is something powerful in the ability to take your enemy's best shot and smile back at them. It tends to discourage them and forces them to reconsider their strategy. So of course the last thing you want is to let them know that their strikes are actually hurting you. If you are to admit that the blackout is giving rise to a huge black market, if you are to talk too loudly about the doubling of the murder rate in your city, if you are to discuss how the bombing campaign indirectly gave a perfect cover for an incredibly brutal serial killer, then it would be like admitting that bombs were working in opening fissures in British society. 
And if you are to admit that, then you could be sure that the bombs would keep on falling. And thousands would keep on dying. So the Blackout Reaper was not just any other serial killer. He was a potential propaganda weapon in the hands of the enemy. And for this reason, he had to be stopped, and stopped quickly. And better yet, he should be talked about as little as humanly possible. So if you are wondering why his uh, Reaper colleague, Jack the Reaper, is pretty much a household name, whereas a few have heard of the Blackout Reaper, well, you don't have to wonder no more. The context of World War II had burying this tale a wartime necessity. This is simply not a story that anyone in Britain at the time had any interest in publicizing. But we're not in the midst of World War II anymore, so telling this story is no longer a gift to Hitler. It's okay now to shed some light on the blackout and on the monster who thrived thanks to the darkness. So let's go in order then. Let's start at the beginning. Before closing in on the Blackout Reaper, let's lay out the basics of the context of World War II. And by basics, I mean the very basics, since if we go deep into the World War II rabbit hole, we could end up with a 15-episode series before I even mention the Blackout Reaper. So with this warning in mind, let's get the ball rolling. The early days of World War II smiled on Adolf Hitler. He had set up an alliance with Mussolini's fascist regime in Italy. Another fascist regime, Francisco Franco's dictatorship in Spain, wasn't officially an ally but was on friendly terms with Nazi Germany. And in his dictatorship friendship world tour, Hitler also reached out to his archenemy, communist dictator Joseph Stalin. Communists and Nazis hated each other's guts. Even though both Stalin and Hitler headed totalitarian regimes, they followed very different brands of totalitarianism. The Nazis being extreme right-wing, the communists being extreme left-wing. Not that it matters, because totalitarian regimes all end up looking the same, regardless of what ideology they espouse. Whether we are talking about religious fundamentalist theocracies, or Nazis, or fascists, or communists, They all hate each other, and they say their political philosophies are all different from one another, but personally I fail to appreciate the distinctions. Regardless of which flag they fly, they are after the same goal. They all want total control. They all want to reform society according to their priorities. They want everyone to submit to a single source of authority and they are ready to trample freedom under their feet. In order to defend their ideals, they are more than happy to unleash horrendous violence against dissidents. In any case, after years of threats and mutual hatred, Hitler and Stalin all of a sudden decided to become best buddies. You are also a murderous dictator who loves to drown opposition in blood? Me too! And before you know it, they were exchanging Christmas cards. Their love affair wouldn't last long. Two years later, Hitler would make his worst strategic mistake and try to invade the Soviet Union. This would be the beginning of the end for him, since the Soviet Union will play a key role in bringing down the Nazi regime. 
Stalin was completely shocked that Hitler had betrayed him. The funny thing about it was that Stalin was the most paranoid guy ever. He never trusted anyone and was regularly executing people for plots against him, both real and imagined. Displaying less-than-ideal skills as a judge of character, the one time Stalin decided to trust someone, he was Hitler. Good job, Stalin. Nicely done. So he ignored multiple reports indicating Germany was about to break their agreement and invade, even going so far as executing some of the people trying to warn him. And once it finally happened, he took quite a while to come to terms with the reality of the situation. I sort of picture Stalin crying in his pillow while his little dictatorial heart was breaking, as he wondered why his German BFF had turned on him and was no longer sending him perfume letters with little hearts on them. But those days were still in the future. In 1939, Hitler and Stalin were busy celebrating their newly found friendship by splitting Poland in a joint invasion. Germany would take the western portion of Poland, while the Soviet Union would take the eastern part. Up until this point, the governments of France and the UK had tried in every conceivable way to avoid conflict with Hitler. The memory of the carnage that had been World War I was still fresh in everyone's mind. And the heads of government in France and the UK were not anxious to start another giant war with Germany that was likely to kill millions of people. By the way, speaking of World War I, if you haven't yet listened to Dan Carlin's series on World War I on his uh, Hardcore History podcast, rethink your life choices and check out Dan's work. Dan is... I consider him a great friend, he's an amazing human being, and he's a master storyteller, and he's definitely the true pioneer of historical podcasting. This World War I series, Blueprint for Armageddon, is incredibly long, but very much worth your time. And after listening to Dan's narration, it would become immediately clear why none of the Allies were particularly enthusiastic at the prospect of starting up where they had left off. At the end of World War I, France and England had committed a cardinal sin when it comes to dealing with defeated enemies. At the end of a war, any war, you want to make sure you no longer have enemies, either because you have turned them into friends or because you made sure they stopped breathing. France and England were not feeling hot about genocide, which is more than understandable, but in their desire to punish Germany for World War I, they planted the seeds of hatred and resentment that allowed a guy like Hitler to gain popularity among ordinary Germans. The reason being is that he was able to portray himself as the kind of strong man who would avenge them from the humiliation of the Treaty of Versailles that they had been forced to sign, and he would be the one to bring back Germany to past glory. Since assuming power, Hitler had been testing what he could get away with. He had committed many small violations of the treaty, and seeing that every time France and England pretended to look another way, Hitler would get bolder and push just a little bit further. When Hitler had invaded part of Czechoslovakia, 
The British and French response had been, Oh, come on, Hitler. Could you please just be a darling and stop invading other countries? If you don't start being a good boy, you can't have any pudding. Are you going to be a good boy? Because, you know, I listen to Pink Floyd's The Wall, and I know that the threat of no padding is terrible. Hitler had responded, Of course, don't worry. And he promptly invaded the rest of Czechoslovakia. Hitler saw the British and French leadership as weak and easy to bully. As he stated in a speech, our enemies have leaders who are below the average. No personalities, no masters, no men of action. Our enemies are little worms. I saw them in Munich. Eventually, by the time Hitler and Stalin were happily invading Poland, France and the UK finally decided to fight against the Nazi regime. But the German military was a well-oiled machine. In the span of a few months, they steamrolled through one country after another. And soon enough, most of Europe was either conquered, in the hands of their allies, or neutral. In 1940, Germany even managed to invade France as if it were nothing a goal that eluded them throughout the entirety of World War I, and which was now easily achieved in World War II. With basically all of Western Europe in his grip, Hitler in mid-1940 turned his attention to the UK, which by virtue of being an island was the only territory that managed to have avoided being invaded by the German army. Unable to attack by land, Germany would have to be satisfied with trying to soften the British defences thanks to their air force. The first strike in mid-1940 was an attempt to wipe out the Royal Air Force in order to gain complete dominion on the sky over Britain. A few weeks of this did not lead to the results the Germans were hoping for. They were not able to wipe out the Royal Air Force as they had envisioned. So by September, they decided to switch strategy. They would now begin targeting British industrial cities, first and foremost London, in order to weaken their remaining enemy in the West. Bombing during the day resulted in heavy German losses, so they refined this approach by beginning to carry out their bombing at night, when their planes were harder to spot. This campaign would become to be known as The Blitz, is the German word for lightning. And it would last from September 1940 until May 1941. During the most intense periods of the Blitz, the German bombers would show up in the British skies every night to drop their deadly cargo. One of the ways in which London and other cities responded to the air attacks was to order a blackout, to give enemy pilots a less visible target. Author Simon Reed described the blackout in the following way. Come nightfall, London sank into a black oblivion. Residents extinguished all light to thwart enemy bombers, at the expense of wrecking some havoc on the ground. The first campaign waged by British women on the home front was one against illumination, stitching countless thousands of yards of dark-colored material 
into blackout curtains. The dark blue, dark green and black drapes were now ritually drawn across all the windows in the capital by sunset. Light could not be permitted to escape any building. To make things even trickier, bus and taxi drivers had to cover their headlights to let minimal light shine through. And needless to say, this led to plenty of accidents. Again, Simon Reed. The result was a lot of distraught drivers standing over the writhing, sometimes steel figures of the pedestrians they had hit in the middle of the street. Nocturnal London had become an alien world of rambling shadows and fleeting figures. Throughout those months, German bombers dropped over 50,000 tons of bombs, killing over 43,000 British citizens and destroying or damaging over a million houses, which of course led to tens of thousands finding themselves homeless. The British would eventually return civilian deaths to Germany with interests. Since it's estimated that Allied bombing of Germany in the years to come ended up killing somewhere between 300,000 and 600,000 civilians. At the start of the war, both the Germans and the British were paying lip service to the idea that they were not intentionally targeting civilians. They were simply collateral damage when striking military targets. Very quickly, though, both sides stopped pretending and they began acknowledging civilians as legitimate targets in their own right. The fact is, being a civilian in World War II was no fun. You know, today, when you kill civilians, you are supposed to apologize. Still happens all the time, but you are supposed to say, sorry, didn't mean to. Back then, the rules of engagement saw anyone from an enemy nation as an enemy. Everyone killed everyone else as civilians. In the Blitz, it was the Nazis killing British civilians. But the Allies would do the same when firebombing on Dresden, Tokyo or lots of other enemy cities. It's basically the same pattern that will lead to the end of the war with two atomic bombs being dropped over Japanese civilians. Hitler believed that the Blitz would break British morale and make them sue for peace. Clearly, being in London during the Blitz was no walk in the park. All over the city, anti-aircraft batteries were pointed at the sky, waiting for the next inevitable night of bombing, and ready to try to bring down the German attackers. Everyone's sleep would be interrupted by the dreaded sound of air raid sirens piercing the night. And the cry of the air raid sirens was the prelude to more sinister sounds. The sounds of bombs falling, buildings collapsing, and fire trucks racing across the city to stop any fire that resulted from the attack. So it's safe to say that no one slept peacefully in London during those nights. I'll quote Simon Reed one more time. The bombs were indiscriminate in their slaughter. They brought down banks and office buildings, homes and schools. Once the all clear sounded, people emerged to a morbid scene, 
one of wafting smoke and devastation. Fire hoses lined flooded streets as overwork fire brigades fought the flames. And rescue squads sifted through rubble in search of the dead and wounded. Behind the scenes, undertakers scurried to make sure enough coffins were on hand. Now, despite these horrible conditions, British morale was a lot tougher to crack than Hitler had predicted. But as I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, the Blitz and the associated blackout were opening more cracks in British society than the official propaganda was advertising. In fact, the blackout was also bringing out a less wholesome facet of British society. As Simon Reid wrote, the London Blitz had given rise to stirring tales of self-sacrifice and heroism, but it also exacerbated the wars of the city's criminal element. I mean, it would have been possible for things to turn out otherwise. You don't turn off the lights in a major city and expect nothing to change. So, not surprisingly, crime rates increased by more than 50% during the blackout in London. And we're not just talking victimless crimes like illegal gambling and prostitution. We're not even just talking about the boom in the black market, with over 114,000 people would be prosecuted for black market activities in the UK. But even the rates of robberies and murder climbed up considerably. There were even a few cases of people murdering someone and then rushing to dump the bodies at the sites that had been hit by German bombs so that the police would think the victims had died because of the bombing and not look any further into it. The Blitz was making it literally easier to get away with murder. By the time the Blackout Reaper began its rampage, Technically, the Blitz was over, since it lasted through May 1941, whereas the Blackout Reaper's reign of terror didn't begin until February 1942. But the effects of the Blitz were still very much alive. The Blackout, in fact, was still on. People were still regularly scanning the sky for the possibility of German bombers coming to deliver death from above. For all everyone knew, this was just a temporary lull in the Blitz, not the end of it. But just as death from German bombs was becoming more of a potential threat than a daily reality, that's when the monster decided to remind London that death could pay them a visit in other ways as well. A lady named Evelyn Hamilton was about to find that out on a night in early February 1942. Hamilton was 40 years old. She had recently lost her job as a pharmacist when the pharmacy where she worked had closed down due to cash influx problems caused by the war. As luck, or bad luck in this case, would have it, she was able to get a new job in Grimsby. She was in London just for the night before she would travel to her new place of employment. But she would never get there, or make it to 41 years old. The morning of the day she was supposed to leave London, 
her body was discovered in an air shelter near Regent's Park in central London. An electrician on his way to work had noticed a torch left on the ground just outside the air raid shelter. So he and a friend went to pick it up and took a peek inside the shelter. What they saw was the lifeless body of Evelyn Hamilton. Within minutes they alerted the police and detectives were at the air raid shelter to examine the crime scene. Among them was Frederick Cheryl, head of Scotland Yard Fingerprint Department. His senior rank should have allowed him to skip working directly on murder scenes, but he insisted on it. That's what he wanted. He had joined the department in 1920 to help catch criminals not to sit behind a desk, and so he had not let promotions change his mind about this. Scotland Yard's fingerprint department had been created in 1901 by future police commissioner Sir Edward Henry. Fingerprints, I mean, we, we use the word all the time, so we all think that we know what they are, but sometimes when I stop to think about it, like, how do they work again? So I was reading on it, and basically fingerprints are shaped by natural secretion of sweat and oils from the skin. They are unique, and they remain constant throughout one's life. And it was just as the 1800s were giving way to the 1900s that the importance of fingerprints in police work was beginning to be recognized. Even in 1942, working on fingerprints was a very different business compared to today. Investigators back then did not have the luxury of a digital database comparing prints for them. Rather, all prints had to be visually inspected against the existing database, a monstrously tedious and difficult job. And can you imagine, you know, grabbing whatever fingerprints you found at a crime scene, looking at them, and then looking at every single fingerprint you have on file to compare them? That's a tough job right there. Cheryl quickly became one of the top agents in the department. As Simon Reed described, the lifting of fingerprints is a delicate task, requiring a gentle touch and a steady hand. Cheryl dabbed a feather brush into a jar of white powder, just as each stroke of an artist's brush creates an image where before there was nothing but a black canvas, so too did Cheryl's brush on the butter surface of the woman's bag. But despite Cheryl's skills, his efforts were frustrated. He did not find any useful prints at the scene. What he and his colleagues noticed, however, was the bruising and discoloration around Evelyn Hamilton's throat, which clearly indicated she had been strangled. Someone had clearly wrapped their hands around her throat and choked the life out of her. The pattern of the bruises suggested that the killer had used primarily his left hand, suggesting he was likely left-handed. The fact that rigor mortis was barely kicking in told investigators she had been dead for no more than a few hours. Some of them believed she may have been strangled on the streets nearby, 
and her body had then been dumped into the shelter. Her skirt was hiked up, her clothes were partially ripped and revealed an exposed breast. This clue seemed to suggest her killer had a sexual motive. But Sir Bernard Spilbury, one of the most famous pathologists in the UK at the time, examined her body and stated that there were no signs of rape. He confirmed so that her killer was left-handed. It was crazy to think that Hamilton had survived plenty of air raids by the Nazis, only to be killed by some maniac among her own countrymen. Spilsbury's work over the years had produced lots of convictions, but at the time when he was analyzing Evelyn Hamilton's body, Spilsbury found little consolation in his fame and professional success. Just a few months earlier, one of his sons had died during the Blitz. A few years later, just at the end of the war, tuberculosis would claim the life of another one of his sons. Their deaths, plus the horrors Spilsbury witnessed daily, since he regularly worked on the most gruesome killings, weighed enough on him that by 1947 he killed himself. Regardless of the high level of investigative talent working on this case, the death of Evelyn Hamilton didn't give them enough clues to come even close to narrowing down the search for a suspect. All they had was that the killer was left-handed. Sure, I mean, a useful piece of information, but not exactly a smoking gun. Had things stopped there, her murder could have joined a long list of unsolved murders during the blackout. But the monster who had taken her life was not one to stop. His compulsion to kill only grew after he strangled Evelyn Hamilton. On the very next night, he was back on the streets of London, hunting for his next victim. The following morning, meter readers from Central London Electric Company came to a building on Wardour Street to do their job. Back then, the way it worked, back then each apartment had a coin-operated meter for tenants to use. The way it would work was that tenants would drop coins in the meter and received a certain amount of time to use the lights and run the heater. When your time would run out, if you wanted to still use electricity or the heater, you would have to drop more coins. And then every so often, the electric company meter readers would come to empty the meters. On this particular morning, the meter readers knocked on the door of a 35-year-old lady named Evelyn Oatley. Their knocking received no answer, but the meter readers noticed that the door to the apartment had been left ajar and had opened further when they had knocked. So, accompanied by Oatley's neighbor, the meter readers announced themselves. Silence was the only answer they received. Puzzled by the open door, they decided to walk in. The apartment was completely dark. One of the meter readers shined a light into the room, and what he and his colleague and Oatley's neighbor saw 
chilled the blood in their veins. After being frozen with horror for a moment, they ran outside in a panic, only to bump into a police patrol walking nearby. So the police accompanied them back to the scene that had sent them fleeing in terror. After seeing what was inside the room, the cops called for Superintendent Cheryl. Evelyn Oatley was laying with her head hanging over the edge of the bed. Blood was everywhere. The killer had tried to strangle her, but when he encountered more resistance than he had expected, he had cut, his, he had cut her throat instead. Oatley's body had been mutilated with multiple objects found at the scene. A careful analysis of these tools revealed different sets of fingerprints. Presumably Oatley's, but also her killers too. And even more interesting was the fact that analysis of the prints and of the dynamics of the killing revealed Oatley was murdered by a left-handed individual. Chief Inspector Edward Greeno from Scotland Yard's murder squad immediately put two and two together and began thinking that maybe the two Evelyns, Oatley and Hamilton, had met their fates at the hands of the same monster, the one that newspaper would soon nickname the Blackout Ripper. This latest murder, in fact, was highly reminiscent of the famous Jack the Ripper killings from 1888. The Blackout Ripper seemed to lack the surgical precision of his more famous colleague, but otherwise the pattern of horrific wounds carried out on the victims' bodies was fairly similar. An interview with Oatley's neighbor allowed investigators a window into who she was and how she had likely met the blackout ripper. Oatley had been an actress. She was married to a poultry farmer from out of town, but had left him to return to her career in the city. Her timing, however, had been terrible. The blackout had reduced the demand for theatre plays. The uncertainty of, of war made people keep their poor strings much tighter, particularly when it came to seemingly frivolous expenses such as attending the theatre. So with her career stalled and bills piling up, Oatley had turned to prostitution rather common choice for many women in London at the time, particularly given that the legal status of street prostitution occupied somewhat of a grey zone, and crackdowns were rare. In addition to needing money, Oatley's other reason for turning to prostitution was that she found comfort being in the company of someone, no matter that they were a stranger, when the air raid sirens screamed in the night. Because of the blackout, prostitutes like Oatley carried small electric torches with them, so they could shine them to let prospective customers know they were there. Unknown to investigators at this time, Oatley usually preferred older men as customers, since they were usually less aggressive and less likely to cause troubles. But previous night, she was convinced to make an exception for a younger and seemingly charming customer. This was a mistake she would have very little time to regret. Oatley's neighbor, a lady whose apartment shared a wall with Oatley's, considered her a friend and 
didn't judge her because of her choice to make a living through prostitution. On the previous night, she had heard very loud music coming from Otley's apartment. Something about it was familiar. You know, knowing that the walls were super thin, Otley always used music to cover up sex noises. But something was also different. The music on this particular night was much louder than ever. Her neighbor even thought of going to knock on Otley's door, but chose not to and went to sleep instead. What she didn't know is that something horrific was taking place on the other side of the wall. The hand that had turned up the volume did not belong to her neighbor. It was the hand of the blackout ripper. And the music wasn't to cover up sex noises. It was to cover up the sounds of slaughter. As horrific as this second murder was, the Blackout Reaper's actions still didn't dominate the headlines. Partially it's because everything had happened so fast that authorities hadn't officially decided that these two murders were the work of the same serial killer. Partially it's because the inhabitants of London had other things on their mind. Whether the Germans would start bombing them again, for example, or consider that in those days the Japanese Imperial Army was busy attacking British forces in their colonies in Southeast Asia, which by mid-February would result in the conquest of Singapore, something that British Prime Minister Winston Churchill called the worst disaster and largest capitulation in British history. In light of this, you can begin to see why the Blackout Ripper murders didn't receive as much attention as they would have had they happened at some other time. That's part of what makes this story so weird. Even though technically it's not about World War II, the fact remains that the war affected everyone that is part of this tale. And I'm not even just referring to the general context of the bombing and the blackout but also to the lives of several key characters. Evelyn Hamilton, for example, was in London only because she had lost her job because of the war and was on her way to her new job. Evelyn Oatley gave up acting in favor of prostitution because the theater business was suffering because of the war. And the blackout ripper himself, well, as we will soon see, his life was very directly tied to the war. Normally, serial killers let some time go by between murders. Not so with the Blackout Reaper. His compulsion and thirst for blood did not take holidays. The very next night he was back on the prowl. His next victim was another prostitute, 43 years old, Margaret Florence Lowe, nicknamed the Lady by other sex workers who walked the streets with her due to her very proper mannerism. Lowe was a widow who had turned to work in the streets in the sex for money business because of financial desperation. A good portion of her earnings went to pay for her daughter's boarding school. Barbara, this was the name of her 15-year-old daughter, would usually come to visit her from the boarding school on the weekends. 
so they could spend some time together going to the movies or walking through Hyde Park. When she arrived on this particular weekend, her mom did not come to answer the door. After repeated attempts, Barbara told herself her mom had probably gone out grocery shopping and she would be back soon. So in the meantime, she walked down to visit one of her mother's friends, a certain Mrs. Carton, who lived nearby. And, you know, the daughter was hoping that maybe Mrs. Carton would know where her mom had gone. But Mrs. Carton told Barbara she hadn't seen her mom in a couple of days. At this point, Barbara made her way back to her mom's apartment, thinking that maybe she had come back by now. The door was still firmly shut, but the police had arrived. Apparently, a package had gone unclaimed for a couple of days in front of Margaret Lowe's door. And this was uncharacteristic enough that a neighbor had called the police. After receiving a set of spare keys from a neighbor, the police opened the door. The detective who first walked into the house had to make his way through complete darkness. Once he was able to turn on a light, he saw Margaret Lowe's body on the bed. She had been strangled with a silk stocking. Unfortunately, that's not all that had been done to her. Her body bore the telltale signs of the work of the Blackout Reaper. Lowe had been mutilated in the same horrifying way as Evelyn Notley. Pathologist Bernard Spilsbury, who examined her body, said that the murderer was, I quote, a savage sexual maniac. On yet another night, the monster was back for more. He walked into a Piccadilly restaurant and began flirting and buying drinks for a 32-year-old lady named Mary Haywood, also known as Greta Haywood, who was there waiting for her boyfriend. Being in a very public place and being told that Mary had a boyfriend who may show up soon did nothing to deter the monster. Because, you see, that's the strange thing. As it turns out, the monster hid behind the facade of a good-looking and charming young man. It would be normal to expect the monster to look like something that crawled out of a swamp. Someone that no sane woman would ever want to be around. But the Black Eyed Reaper was quite the opposite. His looks and charm made him a hit with women. So despite keep trying to deflect his obviously advances, Mary Haywood found herself drawn to the monster's dark spell. The monster's smooth talk convinced her against her better instincts to follow her to another restaurant to have a bite to eat. Don't worry, he told her. You can always come back here within a few minutes to see if your date has arrived. Unbelievably, and I mean really unbelievably, when I was reading this story, I couldn't put two and two together, Mary Haywood agreed to follow him into the streets. They hadn't gone very far before he began propositioning her again. He would alternate a very aggressive flirting style with a more delicate touch that left Mary unsure how to respond. 
since Mary was so far mostly resisting the monster's plans. All of a sudden, he pulled her into the dark doorway of a building and kissed her, and tried to get his hands inside her clothes. Mary this time replied with a decisive no, but one doesn't become known as the blackout ripper by being a gentleman and listening to women's choices. No means no was not a concept that the monster was familiar with, or if he was, definitely not a concept that he felt like honoring. Not being one to take no for an answer, he wrapped his hands around Mary's throat and began choking her out while murmuring repeatedly, and creepingly, I may add, you want. I'm not sure what you want was about, but in any case, creepy to the tenth degree. Mary tried to fight him off, but she lost consciousness before she could free herself. Given the situation, it was just a matter of seconds before she would become another notch on the belt of the Blackout Reaper. But Mary Hayward won a metaphorical lottery that night. Just in that moment, an 18-year-old night porter happened to walk by. The monster hated being interrupted, but hated even more getting caught, so he just ran away. The night porter saw that what the monster had left behind was a woman slumped on the floor, unconscious and with her dress ripped open, but still very much alive. When she recovered consciousness, she and the rescuer noticed a thread that could lead back to the monster's den. Her attacker had dropped a gas mask. They picked it up, soon found a policeman, and told him what had happened. As they went back to the police station, the detectives looked at the mask and realized that this was the key to the whole case. The mask was the exact same kind given to all Royal Air Force members and trainees. By the look of it, the monster was in the Royal Air Force. Problem was that everyone in the Royal Air Force was equipped with identical gas masks, so this restricted the search for Mary Hayward's attacker but not by a lot. Except that for the sake of not getting his mask mixed with someone else's, in his gas mask was written the monster's military serial number, number 525987. Six simple digits that were now the best weapon the detective said against the monster. The cops promptly called the Royal Air Force, asking them to figure out who was the owner of that mask. The Royal Air Force quickly found the match. The man they were looking for was a trainee stationed in London for pilot training, but he was out for the night and they had no idea where exactly he could be. But as soon as he would be back, they would detain him and notify the police. However, the monster wasn't about to return to his den yet. Having struck out at his first attempt, he now approached a sex worker on the streets, a lady named Catherine Molkai, also known as Kathleen King. Author Simon Reed describes their encounter. Her experiences on the streets, 
had endowed Catherine with a sixth sense. Some men gave off a certain vibe that opened a nervous pit in her core. It might be the way they avoided eye contact or simply the way they carried themselves. Men who walk with quick, shuffling steps were often nervous and had something to hide. Men with hands thrust deep in their pockets, shoulders hunched, and their gaze locked firmly on the ground were hunched by guilt. These were not theories deduced from a textbook, but lessons learned on darkened street corners and under well-worn sheets. One had to be careful in this line of work, remaining tuned in to the characters of others, so as to get an immediate sense of what lurked beneath the surface. And, as it turns out, in this particular case, she immediately felt weird about this prospective customer. She couldn't quite put her finger on it, but there was something about him that made her feel uneasy. And yet, uneasy or not, she badly needed the money. So she accepted to go back to her place with him, but she was on guard. Once they were back at her apartment, and they were both naked, he suddenly lunged at her and began choking her on the bed. Even though she was otherwise naked, she was still wearing boots and managed to kick him hard with them. The monster fell off the bed, and this allowed her the time to scream and run out of her apartment. She knocked on a neighbor's door, another single lady, who let her in. Curiously, in the meantime, the monster kept talking to himself, got his clothes back on, and left quite a bit of money for Catherine. And while he was at it, even apologized, saying he had had too much to drink, which is one of the weirdest excuses I've ever heard. It's like, sorry I just tried to murder you, but, you know, I had a little too much to drink. Did he somehow think that it would work and she would go, oh, poor honey, you had a little too much to drink. No wonder you tried to murder me. That could happen to anybody. Weird. In any case, the monster was now 042, and his rage and need to kill were rising. Another prostitute named Patricia Borg was approaching the streets by a prospective client, but something about him creeped her out. Unlike most customers who bartered overpriced, he seemed overly eager to give her whatever money she wanted. So something just didn't seem right. Many people don't trust their instincts. Believing that only logic, rationality, and objective evidence are the proper tools to grapple with reality, these people discount intuition as some unscientific superstition. Patricia Borg was not one of those people, and that's why she was still alive the following morning. She trusted her instinct and turned the customer down. Someone else's antennas, though, were not picking up the same signals. A streetwalker named Doris Chouanet, by the way, I'm taking a complete guess on her last name, I have no idea how to pronounce it. In any case, I'll call her Doris for simplicity's sake. Doris was much less picky. Doris was married to a man 35 years her senior. Back when they had first met, he was very well off financially. Doris had been a prostitute, 
but when she married, she had abandoned that path. For a while, at least. But boredom with married life and his income as a hotel manager having taken a bit of a hit as of late, she returned to her old habits. Her husband's job required him to often sleep at the hotel, and this gave her plenty of opportunity to make some money on the side without having to tell him. But he wasn't stupid. A bit delusional, perhaps, but not stupid. He had more than an inkling of what she was up to. In a later interview with the police, he said she wasn't a prostitute, but quickly added she had a few male friends who visited her for the purpose of intercourse. That's a bizarre statement, if I ever heard one, but in any case. Lacking Patricia Borg's intuition, Doris accepted the monster's offer to hire and lacking Catherine's boots and fighting skills, she wasn't able to fight him off once they went back to her apartment, and he wrapped their stockings around her throat. By the time her husband came back home the following morning, he noticed that the bedroom door was locked. He called for his wife to open up, but nothing stirred inside the room. Worried, he tried to break down the door, but he was too old and frail to get the job done. Having failed in this task, he called the police. Once the cops broke down the door, they found waiting for them a scene that was a bad deja vu from Margaret Lowe's murder scene. Doris was dead in her bed. She had been strangled and her body had been mutilated in the same way as Oatley's and Lowe's. In the meantime, with his daily dose of murder accomplished, the murderer went back to the barracks of the Royal Air Force at 4 a.m., long past the official curfew. Because of the previous night call that they had received from the police regarding the assault on Mary Haywood and the missing gas mask, the monster was detained until the police came to take him into custody. During the interrogation, the monster was polite and outwardly calm. He even joked with the detectives and acted like this must all be a great misunderstanding. When confronted with the gas mask with his serial number found at the site of the attack, with the fact that he perfectly matched the description offered by Mary Awood and the night porter who had rescued her, and with the presence of a piece of paper with Mary Haywood's phone number in his short pocket, the monster just admitted having drunk a lot in the company of a woman, but volunteered he couldn't remember much of what had happened. His statement was, I had several whiskeys and brandies. I cannot remember how many, but I know I had several. After some minutes... I cannot recall how many exactly. I went over and spoke to a woman standing at the bottom of the stairs. I had some conversation with her and I believe I brought her a drink. I cannot remember exactly what followed, but I have a hazy recollection of walking around the streets with her. By this time I was very drunk and did not know what I was doing. The next thing I remember it was around 2.30 a.m., I found myself in Marble Arch and caught a cab back to Regent's Park. 
I have a hazy recollection, apparently hazy is one of his favorite words, but I have a hazy recollection of being with a woman, but I cannot remember striking her. I deeply regret what has happened, and I'm willing to pay her compensation. Had investigators thought there was a connection between the soldier and the blackout ripper, they could have noticed that the monster signed his statement with his left hand. But for now, nobody had connected dots yet, and he was only being charged with the assault on Mary Haywood. If we could see what the investigators saw before them, we would probably be struck by how non-monster-like the monster looked. No fangs, no clothes, actually a fairly good-looking 27-year-old guy. The monster had a name, and his name was Gordon Cummins. And Cummins checked all the boxes for a seemingly normal life. He had a wife, he was popular with the other enlisted men. Some found him mildly obnoxious to his constant boasting about his affairs with women and his dubious claims of descent from a noble family. He had even developed a whole upper-class mannerism and way of speaking to go with his untruthful claim. But most people liked him, because he was very generous with his money and he had a very sociable personality. Appearances indicated he was just a jolly good fellow, perhaps not exactly loyal to his wife, but nothing out of the ordinary. It was as he was sitting in jail waiting to be tried for the attack on Mary Haywood that the police discovered the bodies of Margaret Lowe and Doris Jonet, bringing now to four the total number of confirmed murder victims of the blackout ripper. Based on his examination of the bodies of the latest victims, pathologist Sir Bernard Spilsbury confirmed that it was likely that the blackout ripper was responsible. But investigators didn't yet know that the guy in their custody wasn't simply a soldier who got drunk and aggressive with a lady. Sitting in prison was the man they were looking for. Something about Gordon Cummins didn't adapt, though. His uniform was stained with blood, but Mary Haywood had suffered no bleeding wound. Add to this that in the meantime, Catherine King had given the police her testimony of the attack she had survived at the hands of one of her clients. The fact that her description perfectly matched Gordon Cummins convinced the detectives to pass the case to Chief Inspector Edward Greeno, who was in charge of the Evelyn Hamilton's and Evelyn Oatley's murder investigations. To start things off on a good foot, the police was able to tie Cummins to the attempted strangling of Catherine King. I keep saying Catherine, Kathleen, because, you know, as I mentioned, she had uh, a couple of different names that she went by. Remember how her attacker had left some of his money at her place? It turns out that the money could be traced back to Cummins, since the Royal Air Force had paid all their cadets with bills freshly withdrawn from the bank so that the serial numbers were all in sequential order. So the police could confirm that the money found in Catherine's King apartment was exactly the one that had been given as pay to Cummins. So okay, we have two assaults in one night. 
bad, but not yet fitting the profile of the Blackout Reaper. Things got more interesting, though, when Inspector Greeno was able to verify with relatives of the murder victims that some of their items were found among Cummins' possessions. Clearly these were souvenirs that he had lifted off his victims to remember them by. And things got a lot more interesting when Frederick Cheryl, head of Scotland Yard's fingerprint department, took Cummins' fingerprints and verified they were a perfect match to those found at the crime scenes. And in case all this wasn't enough, they found that the blood spots on his uniform belonged to Doris, one of the Blackout Reaper's victims. Divisional Detective Inspector Leonard Clare provided the metaphorical nail in the coffin. He examined the gas mask because both women who survived the attacks said their attacker had placed the respirator on the ground before trying to kill them. Upon examination, it turned out that tiny pebbles were still trapped in Cummins' gas mask, which matched perfectly those found in the air raid shelter where Evelyn Hamilton's body was found. During the investigation, a prostitute spoke with one of the detectives. She said that on the night when Evelyn Oatley was murdered, an airman had come back home with her, but had acted weird and then ran away. Her description matched Cummins. Detective Greeno was in the room where the lady worked, as she was telling the tale. He noticed that the room was divided in two by some bed sheets hanging in the middle from a clothesline. He got an uneasy feeling as if they weren't alone in the room, so he got up, went close to the bedsheets hanging, and noticed a pair of eyes staring at him through small holes in the sheets. He turned down the sheets and found a guy standing behind it. The lady screamed, please don't hurt him. She explained that he was her bodyguard. He always stood there when she brought clients home, to keep an eye on things and make sure no one got violent. Cummins had noticed this and had run away. It was only now that she realized that she owed her bodyguard her life. Otherwise, excellent chances she would have been murdered like Evelyn Oatley. Despite the mountain of evidence against him, Cummins refused to confess and entered a not guilty plea. The trial began at the end of April 1942, just a couple of months after the monster's killing spree. Things were delayed a bit since the first jury had to be dismissed after they were shown the wrong evidence. But it didn't take long to set up a new trial with a new jury. His lawyer attempted to argue that since he slept in open barracks, Anyone could have placed the items belonging to the murder victims among his possessions. The blood on his uniform and most damning of all Cummins' fingerprints at the murder scenes made the lawyer's feeble attempt at a defense irrelevant. After being presented with all the evidence, the jury only took 35 minutes to deliberate before coming back with a guilty verdict. As the trial wrapped up, the judge addressed Cummins. Gordon Frederick Cummins, after a fair trial, you have been found guilty, 
and on a charge of murder, as you know, there is only one sentence which the law permits me to pronounce, and that is that you be taken from this place to a lawful prison, and thence to a place of execution, and that you be there hanged by the neck until you are dead. And may the Lord have mercy upon your soul. And as harsh as that may sound, I imagine how it may be to look at someone in the eyes and tell them that you are ordering them to be, quote, hanged by the neck until you are dead. Being hanged was still a considerably better death than Cummins' victims had received at his hands. In the days that pass, between the sentence and the execution, Cummins spent much time visiting the prison chapel to pray for his family and for himself. But apparently his religious activities didn't include any mention of or thought for any of his four victims. And when I say four victims, Scotland Yard wasn't that sure that the four they knew of were the only people who had died by Cummins' hand. In looking at recent cold cases, detectives noticed that a couple of murders from October 1941 showed the remarkable similarities with the Blackout Reaper ammo. Both cases involved women being strangled within days of each other and just a few streets away from one another. In both cases, the killer had taken personal possessions. Now, Cummins had been stationed nearly 100 miles away at the times of the murders, but there are no records of his comings and goings from the base. And when he went to visit his wife at her workplace, well, that wasn't too far from where the two other murders had taken place. While investigators were pretty convinced that these two murders may have been the early work of the Blackout Ripper, there just wasn't enough evidence to conclude anything with any degree of certainty. But regardless of whether Cummins was guilty of four or six murders, there was still the unanswered question of why he did it. The senior medical officer at the prison couldn't figure it out. There was no history of mental illness in Cummins' family. Cummins himself wasn't diagnosed with a mental illness either. He didn't have a known history of violence. His medical bill was clean, with no signs of any diseases that could have warped his brain and personality. The police interviews with those who knew him didn't offer any hints either. They were a classic case of, he seemed like such a nice guy. Most of the other airmen he served with referred to him as a perfectly decent man. His parents described him as an excellent young man. Like his parents, his wife Marjorie chose to ignore the mountain of evidence against him and preferred to believe he was innocent. She said he had always been kind to her and added, Our married life has been perfectly happy. My husband has spent every available moment with me when he was able to. I'm very surprised to hear he has been charged, as he was most anxious to do well on his training. Yeah, you know, he was so sweet and spent every available moment with me, except for when he was strangling women and ripping them apart. 
You know how a little while ago we were talking about instincts and how some people are able to intuitively feel something about someone's personality from just a few seconds of interactions? Well, Marjorie Cummings was clearly at the exact opposite end of the spectrum. She married a monster, and despite all the time she spent around him, never had an inkling of who he truly was. I'm always amazed by people married to someone for years and being completely unable to see who their spouse actually is. Too busy projecting their hopes and dreams on them to actually see them for who they are. These unfortunate people are blind to anything beyond appearances. They only see what they want to see. And that's the feeling you get from reading the interviews with Cummings' family. According to them, the man they knew was the poster boy for normalcy. Good marriage, nothing weird about his family, good education, military career, no criminal record. He checks all the right boxes. Nothing in his background sheds light on how and why he became the blackout ripper. Yes, okay, Cummings was fired from several jobs for being unfocused and lazy. But unfocused and lazy doesn't equal the blackout ripper. Some people have wondered if maybe his time working in the leather tanning industry may have exposed him to chemicals that may have affected his personality. But this is complete speculation. And speaking of speculation, interviews revealed that Cummings and his wife wanted a family but never had kids. This has led some to argue that perhaps Cummings suffer from impotence. His murder scenes hint at something like that. The condoms he was using with some of the prostitutes he killed were found completely empty. One lady, whom Cummings tried having sex with, told investigators something revealing. Laura Denmark was a sex worker hired by Cummings close to the beginning of his murder spree. She told investigators that after they had returned to her place, and she had taken off her clothes. Cummings had desperately tried to get himself ready for sex, but had failed miserably. Cummings blamed it on having had too much to drink earlier that night. She had felt bad for him, so she spent half hour cuddled up with him, joking and trying to make him feel more at ease. She also says that when they parted company, he shook her hand and told her, I wish you all the best, and I hope you earn more money tonight. Laura Denmark described Cummings as polite, courteous, and a real gentleman. He seemed like a very decent sort of chap and was very respectful to me. Just an hour later, One hour, 60 minutes, just an hour later, that same polite, courteous, and very decent sort of chap picked up Evelyn Oatley and murdered her. Is there a connection between his frustrated sexuality and this switch from polite gentleman into murdering monster? Possible, of course. But the simple reality is that we'll never know. Scotland Yard Chief Superintendent Fred Cheryl said of him, Not since the panic-ridden days of 1888, when Jack the Ripper was abroad 
in the East End. Had London known such a reign of terror as that which existed in this wartime February, when night after night, death, fiendish, revolting and gruesome, came to four unsuspecting women in the heart of the metropolis. But whereas Jack the Ripper would enter the pages of popular history with literally over a hundred books written about him, the case of the Blackout Ripper would largely be forgotten. As I mentioned earlier, the government was not keen on publicizing stories that would put on display inner problems within British society. They wanted to put forward a unified front, not stories of serial killers using the wartime blackout to murder their fellow citizens. And the newspapers? Well, the newspapers had enough drama covering the war. They didn't need to dive into the Blackout Ripper story to sell copies. So the same war that created opportunities for the Blackout Ripper to strike was also the same one that made his story almost forgotten. Cummins was hanged on June 25th, 1942. In a perfect moment of symbolism underscoring the connection between the Blackout Ripper and the war, right after he was hanged, German bombers were spotted, a siren's warning of an impending attack screamed all over the city. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to yet another episode of History on Fire. Big thank you in particular to two listeners, Mr. Justin Maples and Josh Riddle, for sponsoring History on Fire on Patreon at the $50 level. The prize, as usual, is to have your name horribly mispronounced by yours truly and my Italian accent. Big thank you also to anyone who has been using the History on Fire Amazon link, that always helps a bunch. Thank you to a couple of companies I want to mention. Never Tap Gear for sponsoring Savannah M. Uh, Dynasty Forge, who sent me some amazing swords, something that I have a deep fondness for. So if you like blades, Dynasty Forge, check them out. Uh, Never Tap Gear that I mentioned a second ago, these guys make knee braces, so if you ever, you know, if you work out and you like to protect your knees, that's not a bad option. Check them out. And also I want to thank all the companies that have been sponsoring this particular episode. So here we go. 
This episode of History on Fire is brought to you by Nordic Track. I'm super excited about being sponsored by them because I actually want their products. This is not just stuff that is like, oh, this looks good, maybe. No, I am getting this stuff. I've officially decided. I have my eyes on this one uh, treadmill desk. Uh, what I dig about it is the idea that, you know, I spend an ungodly amount of hours at the computer every day, researching, working, answering messages. And so the idea of being able to have a standing desk connected to a treadmill where I can walk at a leisurely pace while I get my work done, but by the end of the day I've just clocked in miles and miles, I kind of dig that concept. So that's next on my shopping list. Special offer for History on Fire listeners, you get $75 off your Nordic Track purchase by visiting nordictrack.com forward slash history. Again, use the offer code history, it's nordictrack.com forward slash history, and you'll save $75 off your purchase. In addition to treadmills, they have exercise bikes, incline trainers, a bunch of equipment for strength training, all sort of really healthy, really good stuff, so check them out. This episode of History on Fire is also brought to you by 4 a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, sexual wellness for men. Some crazy statistics I was reading, some 66% of guys experience hair loss by the age of 35, 40% of men by age 40 struggle with ED. These guys at 4 try to solve those problems in the easiest possible way. You don't need an in-person doctor visit for a prescription. Everything can be done online. They basically sell you the generic version, which is considerably cheaper but works the same than some of the main brand for the top hair loss and ED products. You can try their products for a month, starting today for just $5. So, while supplies last, only $5 for History on Fire listeners. This would cost, needless to say, would cost a whole lot more if you were to go any other route. So go to 4 forward slash history and the number 5. Again, that's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com forward slash history and the number five. Can't beat this deal, so check them out. You guys by now know who else we're sponsored by, since they have been sponsoring us all year long. You have heard it before, History on Fire is sponsored by BlueApron.com. And you've heard it before, not just because of repetition, but because of the insane level level of enthusiasm that I've been displaying when I talk about them. Because we eat that three times a week. Three days a week, we got our, you know, we got the delivery once a week, and then we have food that's lasting for three awesome meals of the week. My only regret is that I don't have more. Maybe I should up my plan and start getting more stuff. In any case, they offer amazing recipes. You can pick how many you want each week, whether two, three, or four high-quality ingredients, fairly easy-to-follow um, directions. Usually you can get an amazing meal prepared for really fast. So, what I suggest you do is check out this week's menu, 
and get your first three meals for free at blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Again, that's blueapron.com forward slash on fire to get your first three meals free. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Also, please show some love to my regular sponsors, Onnit and Datsusara. Onnit has a whole variety of products that I use every day from some of their supplements, including Alpha Brain that I just tried earlier today for the millionth time in my life. Excellent stuff. Exercise equipment. If you walk into my house, right there in the living room, there's a collection of kettlebells that got to be put to very good use. Their kettlebells, by the way, are amazing. They have some really artistic shapes, some of them. They are functional and yet really beautiful. They're like a work of art. So you have exercise equipment, you have... Um, particularly on it is famous for their supplements and for some of the special foods they sell. In addition, you have clothing and a whole bunch of other stuff. So rather than me trying to tell you everything they have, which would take the whole episode, go check them out at onnit.com forward slash history. Again, that's onnit.com forward slash history, where you'll receive an automatic discount. And the other good folks who sponsor me since forever are the people at Datsusara. Website is dsgear.com, again the letter D, the letter S, the word gear.com. There's no code, no slash, no nothing. You can just go there and check out all the goodies. They just restocked all their bags. Um, I use the backpack every time I travel. My daughter takes one of their backpacks to school. I use a computer bag when I go to teach at the university. Lots of great stuff there, so check out for the greatest hemp gear on the planet at dsgear.com. This episode is also brought to you by Simple Contacts. Simple Contacts is the most convenient way to renew your contact lens prescription and reorder your brand of contacts from anywhere, just within a few minutes. The vision care for the 21st century. These guys have created a way to save you time and energy by making the process of renewing your contact lenses prescription as fast and, pain and painless as possible. It can take about 5 minutes to do the simple contacts vision test online, it will be reviewed by a licensed doctor, you will then receive the renewed prescription and you can reorder your contacts. Of course, keep in mind, this isn't a replacement for your periodic full high health exam, but it does make things infinitely easier, so you didn't need to do the in-person visits in, even when you're confident you're not due for one and your vision hasn't changed. All you need is your current contacts, an internet connection and 10 feet of space. Simple Contacts is all the brands and types of lenses you're familiar with, so you never have to shop around to find your lenses at the best price. Best part, History on Fire listeners can enjoy a $20 discount by going to simplecontacts.com forward slash HOF. These guys have over 4,500 five-star ratings on the App Store, so check them out for a $20 discount by going to simplecontacts.com forward slash HOF. If you didn't catch any of the above websites, the links are in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com. And with that, this episode of History on Fire is officially over, and I thank you guys so much for listening, 
and I will be seeing you next month.